Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for the May Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I'm very good, my friend, and uh, looking forward to some really fun papers this month. I know, and I've barely recovered from that lovely podcast we did on listening with Rebecca and Laura. So uh, congratulations again. Really nice conversation. Oh, it was lovely. Thanks so much for facilitating it. I'm uh, really mm. excited to get that out and share it. Well, before we get into our papers, uh, just a reminder for Simulcast listeners that Sim Reconnect is on again, particularly for those of you who are in the Australia-New Zealand world, but we'd love it if you came from any other parts of the world. So that is Wednesday, November the 15th uh, at Bond University, and we'll have some information about that up on the Simulcast website. But if you are interested and don't know how to get onto that, please contact us at Simulcast and we'll get you some opportunities to register. We've got Vicky LeBlanc talking about all things stress and simulation and some of the work she's doing in that. But we've also got some of our friends locally, including some from your shop talking about return on investment. Uh, Nicole Singh from the Royal Brisbane is going to talk about training some elite teams and, and there's some good workshops too on the day before as well. So Sim Reconnect at Bond University, part of our translational Sim Collaborative. All right, Ben, well, we better get into our papers and you're going to do the first two and then I'll do the next two uh, and lots of good reading and hopefully now listening as a result. So kick it off for us. Absolutely. So the first paper is entitled Informing Simulation Design, a Qualitative Phenomenological Study of the Experiences of Bereaved Parents and Actors. And it's published in Simulation in Healthcare, and the uh, lead author is Siddharth Vamuri. And so this study caught my eye, Vic, because as you know, I'm pretty interested in how we rehearse uh, patient death, and particularly after-death cares in the emergency department. Uh, and we dedicate like a four-hour workshop on that in our PEDS ED reg training, just specifically because we don't see that done particularly well in other sites sometimes. And I really wanted to mitigate the chances that our regs and our nurses have to negotiate a bereaved family and th their care overnight on their own for the first time. Uh, so I'm also really interested in this co-design with parents, which I think is so important uh, when dealing with a sensitive topic like this to avoid caricatures and, you know, very silliness. But there is a risk, actually, when you're engaging with families who have experienced a traumatic bereavement in emergency, in that when you're going over that experience with them, there is kind of this little bit of micro trauma that might happen when you're going over that experience with them. And you're kind of re-exploring those memories and digging into the specifics. And there has, I've got to be honest, a couple of times now where I've worked with a family who's either lost a child or whose child was temporarily extremely unwell. And I've walked away each time kind of going, I know this was a good thing to do and I think this will have a big impact on our learners. But those parents did actually pay an emotional cost for that learning. And it does make me maybe not worried, but very cautiously reflective, I think, about that process. Maybe unsettled is the word. Yeah, I think unsettled I think would I be. I recognise that. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so this study actually sets out to explore this in a really nice way uh, through qualitative methodology, which I really think is super appropriate for this kind of murky question. 
So long story short, the researchers collaborated with five bereaved parents and two actors in a full day workshop where together they co-created character details for simulated parents in a simulation about losing a child. And then the parents and actors were interviewed through semi-structured questions up to about four weeks after the workshop to explore their experience. So this was an inductive qualitative process where the authors try and keep an open mind about what that experience might be rather than thinking, you know, it will be one thing and testing it. And in doing so, they identified many themes. So the parents found the workshop understandably challenging and emotional. They describe that it could feel raw and cause them to revisit that grief. But they also very articulately described that that grief was contained in the moment, that it didn't linger, and that it actually felt psychologically safe to share those experiences. And there's one quote from one of the parents who says, like you go away and feel a bit bruised and a bit emotional from that, but in terms of actually being there and hearing it, no, that's fine. I mean, you know, it's obviously hard, but I don't go away and worry about it or something, which I thought was a really lovely description of being in a psychologically healthy enough space that you can revisit that grief without necessarily being controlled or overwhelmed by it. The parents also found that it was an altruistic and meaningful way to honor the memory of their child, and that it built a sense of community between the attendees, and also that there was power uh, for being in the room, and that there was an emotional connection shared by the parents who were in the room with the actors. And this was highlighted in quite an interesting comment because one of the parents attended via Zoom due to COVID concerns, and they reported actually feeling quite disconnected from that sense of community, which I can totally understand. Uh, the actors also found it really valuable, but they actually also recognized that they carried some of that grief through the workshop process, which is pretty understandable too. So apart from the exploration of the participants' experience, though, there's also some very nice practical tips in this article about how to do this kind of thing well and sensitively. So things like ensuring parents have the option to bring a support person, making sure it's face-to-face whenever possible, and potentially doing things like sending them the questions beforehand so that they can think about it at home and prepare themselves for what they want to highlight and don't feel blindsided by the question in the moment. In the end, though, the study highlights that rather than being damaging for the parents involved, there was actually a modicum of healing in these movements. And uh, I remember my friend Yanni, the psychiatrist figure, you know, he's often told me that before uh, experiencing a negative emotion isn't the damaging thing for us. It's often undigested emotion that's harmful. And I think this is a beautiful example of a very delicate study exploring and reliving complex and distressing emotions in ways that are actually really positive for those involved. And it was also really nicely done just from a uh, qualitative methodology point of view. Yeah, absolutely. I think the two really interesting things is the sort of setup of how this was done and then obviously the findings. But I think to start with that latter findings first, it is quite reassuring, I think, about that sense of being unsettled. And it goes straight to a fundamental thing that I'm sure psychologists would explain and understand much better than me. And that is that the presence of emotions is not a psychologically unhealthy thing. And I think this pertains to when we're in a debrief room, when we're talking to patients, when we're talking to our peers, somehow we think that uh, someone crying or someone being upset is somehow then, oh my God, we didn't maintain psychological safety. 
And I think this emphasizes why that's they are two different things. Someone being sad, maybe completely psychologically healthy. And, you know, I know psych safety is slightly different to that, but similarly, it doesn't necessarily mean that we've had a lack of psychological safety just because someone uh, starts crying. That actually might be a perfectly normal, healthy response to something that happened and uh, something triggering in us. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think, you know, if someone asked me to train some actors in this particular content, I would just like you be very frightened of the potential harms. But of course, uh, this, I think, helps us understand that there are ways that it can be done. They're clearly not for uh, not without thought, but they can be done uh, so that we can capture the obvious opportunities that might there be there in so many different ways um, and address that kind of fear of the unknown that we might be doing harm. Uh, but the other thing that I found a bit interesting was who did this and why they did it. So this appeared in Simulation in Healthcare. It's a simulation journal. From what I can tell, the authors, they don't name an affiliation with a simulation program. And this workshop is about training actors to then work in a simulation activity. Uh, so they're very researcher heavy um, as opposed to practitioner heavy uh, in terms of simulation practitioner anyway. So I was a little bit interested, although they gave a few lovely paragraphs about what positioning they were from, I was kind of interested about their connection to a simulation program and whether this was part of other work that they did in preparing actors or simulated patients to participate in sims, or whether it was very narrowly focused in this particular area uh, of palliative care and palliative care in the case of um, the care of children. So uh, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the faculty that chose to do this, you know, clearly had experience and interest in this area because it is just a beautiful demonstration of the sensitivity uh, needed to do it well. And I think for people who are interested in, uh, at whatever level of expertise, once again, there's really great reading for people like me here to get to know the words and the good descriptions of uh, quality, qualitative research. Hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to paper number two. Uh, so this is a very different theme, but again, a qualitative study. So this paper was published in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine, and it's entitled Interprofessional Clinical Event Debriefing. Does it make a difference? Attitudes of Emergency Department Care Providers to Info Clinical Event Debriefings, and it's by Stuart Rose et al. And it mainly came, I have to confess, uh, into this paper after reading even Josephine Gabriel and Andrew Petrosoniak's editorial on it, which was just a delightful uh, paper, but a story for another day. And look, for a bit of background, in case our uh, listeners aren't familiar, you know, we've been talking about clinical event debriefing a fair amount on Simulcast and other forums. And I think what, you know, kind of alarms me nowadays, Vic, is how repetitive some of these conversations actually are. Like, with this seems valuable, but what if it goes wrong? What if we cause psychological damage to our participants? Maybe there's a risk that this means this is a dangerous intervention. Just huge levels of caution. And I totally get it. Uh, particularly when we start talking about cold debriefings, which I think are a bit messier. But particularly when we're talking about these hot debriefings close to the time of the event, uh, it just seems like a no-brainer to me. But it is fair to say that we haven't had a lot of data to back up that sense that this is important and safe. Uh, and we don't have a lot of information previously on the experiences and perceptions of staff who engage in clinical event debriefing. 
So it's kind of a pretty hard conversation to move on from when we're not really holding a lot of evidence in your hands. So I was really excited to see this paper come out to hopefully start answering that question a little bit more. I think we've already got pretty good evidence for performance improvement, and I'm so glad we're starting to explore that second question of what is the actual impact on staff. So the background for this paper is there are like five emergency departments in Calgary that utilize the info tool for clinical debriefing. And info stands for immediate, not for assessment, fast facilitated feedback, and opportunity to ask questions. It's a script-based clinical event debriefing tool, and it's got a nice kind of clear set of criteria. It's a pretty short tool, and then you train the charge nurses in the emergency departments there to facilitate a focused 10-minute discussion after certain events. There's been over like 800 documented info debriefs now, and so this qualitative study invited staff to reflect on their experiences of info using those structured interviews. And the authors, you know, are very explicit about their questions. I have to confess this is probably one of the more quantitative, qualitative papers I've read because uh, it was very much about does info work and does it do certain things, which were, you know, does info lead to a psychologically safe, helpful experience? Do people feel less stressed after debriefing? What barriers they perceive to debriefing? And did they think it provided opportunities for improving their own clinical practice? So very pragmatic, straight-to-the-point questions. Uh, from a qualitative point of view, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here as I try to get better, but this would be probably, you would say, a fairly deductive rather than inductive qualitative question, i.e. we're coming already with an opinion, which is we think info is good and we want to explore whether that's the case through this methodology. You're shaking your head a little bit there. Uh, well, again, I'm hesitant to pretend to be an expert on this, but my, my uh, sense of in deductive is that there's actually a conceptual model through which you are interpreting qualitative data. And I guess I can't quite see the conceptual model there. I can see what you see, which is a positivist paradigm, which is, is debriefing good or not? I can totally see that. Um, and it's a positivist paradigm, but it has some qualitative methods in it. And that doesn't have to be wrong. That doesn't need, that's not the commonest fit, but that can fit. Uh, but I think there isn't particularly a conceptual model through which they are finding these themes necessarily, which is, I guess, my understanding of deductive. So uh, thanks for that. Um, so Stuart uh, and his team interviewed 30 staff from the hospitals running Info, and it's quite a nice interprofessional mix, including pharmacists, physicians, registered nurses, and respiratory therapists. Uh, and overall, what did they find from their interviews? Well, they got a number of themes out, uh, but essentially the participants definitely described opportunities to improve their practice and their service, and they valued the structure of the tool and found that uh, overcame some barriers to rolling out debriefing. And about 87% of them felt an improved relationship with team members due to debriefing, which seems like pretty good numbers, uh, and that almost all of them felt they could speak up. They felt that there was emotional acknowledgement in the debriefings, which is interesting because info doesn't really include a prompt for that. So it was actually quite interesting when we dig into that data because the participants clearly acknowledge that the emotional processing that just occurs because you're spending time together after something significant as human beings rather than it having to be a specific part of the facilitation. 
Uh, they described that it helped with stress, uh, that it helped some feel like they're not alone in their reaction to events, which was nice. And unsurprisingly, time was seen as the primary barrier to getting these rolled out. People didn't seem to mind too much where the debrief was done. And they noted that teams are pretty good at prioritizing those big, big cases uh, and not so good at prioritizing the ones that went well or more minor ones that still fit criteria. So overall to me, you know, does this paper close the controversy on hot debriefings? Look, I, I actually agree with even Petra here. Like I think there are some nice components to the answer of that in this in this assessment, which is basically no one's running around saying they were damaged by this. Everyone's running around saying this was good, pretty much. And while it wasn't a perfect tool for everyone, there's clearly huge amounts of benefit from this and I think underestimating the risk of maintaining the status quo because of a theoretical risk is really starting to become quite concerning at this point. And I think that's uh, explored more in even Petro's paper. What I do think, though, is that there are some missed opportunities here in terms of the questions that were actually asked. Um, I feel like this paper is very much about let's prove that this works and that we're not damaging people, which is fine. I'm a big kind of info stan, but I would have loved to explore in more detail some of the more gray areas of staff experience. Like what impact did having this program have on their identity as professionals or how did they perceive it impacted the culture of the department as a whole? Uh, I'd love to explore some of the feelings of human connection that have come up here and why that felt like that and how that came to be. But maybe that's just a different study. Yeah, I think there's always a lesson in uh, having a clear question and then thinking about a good way to answer it um, because we can get really stuck if there's many of them. But you're quite right there. If we're going into what is people's experience of something, there's some opportunities uh, to do that. Uh, so I, I think this continues to be something mired in different understandings of concepts, different motivations, and uh, I think the idea of having a model is probably a fool's errand. I think as well for me, like I do have to acknowledge I'm obviously very biased because I love Stuart and enjoy going on food tours with him. But um, I think for me the methods description also, I had trouble understanding exactly the process that went on in these interviews and how these uh, these uh, themes and issues were found. Um and so I think I would have loved to have had more detail about the how of this study in order to sort of be able to understand the process and uh, so on. Mm, yes, mm. I know. It's uh, always tricky when people are trying to reflect a, a, a nuanced and multifaceted process in some lines on a page. It's a hard, it's a hard job. Agreed. All right. Well, looks like it's my turn now. We're shifting uh, – focus and we're going to move over to Scotland uh, in terms of where the authors are from. And this is a paper in the IJOS, International Journal of Healthcare Simulation, titled Maximising Opportunities During a Simulation Fellowship. Uh, and this is by Emma Phillips and a group um, from uh, Scotland in the UK, Julie Doventry, Ed Mellonby and Vicky Talentier. Uh, and this is really a very practical, pragmatic article which says if you're going to be a sim fellow, 
here's some tips for what we think might help you get the most out of this experience. Uh, in terms of sort of positioning, it's probably important to say that uh, Emma herself is a doctor. She's an anaesthetics trainee. Uh, and so I think that has influenced a little bit some of the tips in there. But I also think they've been pretty careful to try and think about a more inclusive uh, sim fellows might come from all kinds of places. So uh, they start with an introduction. Look, sim fellowships are very varied, but whatever you're actually aiming for, there probably are a few principles about how to make the most of the opportunity. They make reference to work that we're familiar with from people like Michael Magadushian and Damien Shield, uh, looking at the what, like what should be in a curriculum for a simulation fellowship. Um, and they acknowledge that that is important, but they kind of veer away from that discussion and say, look, we love that discussion and whatever are in that curriculum, there's still some things about the process that we think we can uh, focus on here. So they offer their uh, tips and their ways of maximizing opportunities in four categories. Uh, and the first of those is about expectations and feedback. First simple one, just clarify the objectives. And those might need to be aligned, for instance, with a specialty training program or national requirements, but whatever the objectives are, make sure they're clear. Um, have an organized approach, just things like having really good productivity hacks and IT skills. Uh, working effectively with your supervisor, it doesn't just happen. Actually negotiate how often you're going to meet up and who's going to hold who to account. Ask for feedback. Uh, and look, I think these are these are good tips for anyone doing any kind of fellowship, but um, for I think it holds true for sim fellows as well. Uh, they do, in, in their second category, talk about sim activities, uh, learning to design and deliver simulation. And there's a nice little table in there about some of the things that they consider important in that process but they don't get too granular. Uh, and as part of their SIM activities category, they talk about curating a collection of resources, and we get more than one reference in there, both the simulcast self-development modules and the journal club. So we're going to take it. This is a great paper. Gold star. Gold star. <laughs> Gold star. <laughs> But they talk in there about uh, conferences and about um, the simulation journals. So what are those references that people might be connecting with as they develop their skill sets? Uh, their fourth category is about scholarship, getting involved in research, even if that might not mean leading a project yourself, but just getting an appreciation of uh, simulation-based research, publish and presenting projects, knowing that there's more to scholarship than research, simply uh, sharing our work, reflecting on it, and getting feedback on it is scholarly. Uh, they talk about a qualification, which might be uh, a bit contentious. Not everyone thinks that needs to be part of a fellowship. Uh, but they emphasize, I think appropriately, about networking and collaborating so that you can think about making the most of your simulation career beyond the fellowship. Uh, and then I like their fourth category, which is uh, focusing on professional development, including developing professional identity. For a lot of people who come to simulation fellowships, they come from a clinical role and they kind of have to revisit who they are, not just what they do and what their skill sets are, but say, well, am I still in, say, Emma's case, uh, an anaesthetist, or do I now start to think about myself as an educator, a sim educator? Like, uh, how do I shift a little bit that focus? They encourage people to maintain clinical skills, if that's the background they come from, and to, and I quote, continue the sim journey uh, and look for ways to make that on ongoing part of their career, having invested time in this development of the skill set. So I just thought this was an easy, pretty thoughtful read. Um, I think if I would be recommending it to sim fellows and supervisors to read maybe at the beginning, maybe in the middle, again near the end, just to sort of a little reminder of here's some tips for making the most of it. So uh, that was, I thought, were your thoughts, Ben? 
Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like what a lovely paper. And I didn't know. Uh, I think Emma and Dan, uh, my fellow Dan Hofton were previously education fellows together at uh, Lothian somewhere as well. I know they're just nice. a breeding ground. Oh, yeah, just horrifically delightful, intelligent people who are very good at their jobs. Uh, I don't know what's in the water over there, but <laughs> it seems to be good. Um, I know. But uh, I do actually love that IJOS is publishing essays like this because I think this kind of paper wouldn't necessarily get traction in some journals, and I think it's got so much value. Uh, I certainly dropped it in our fellows chat this week to explore and reflect on, and we did exactly what you mentioned. So I've got some previous SIM fellows and invited them to reflect on what they wish they had done out of that that they hadn't, uh, and then invited the, our current SIM fellows to read it and you know, commit to one of the one or two of those things to make, you know, to move forward through the year. And I think it's going to be a paper that has lots of value every year for that reason. And lots of just simple, pragmatic, sensible wisdom in there. I really liked it. Yeah, it's reminiscent of the 12 tips mm. in uh, Medical Teacher and emulated in other journals as well. And I think they are, particularly when they're well-written uh, and tangible and practical, I think these are very valuable contributions to the to the literature, um, and uh, I will be using it similarly. Uh, and interestingly, just as a sideline, since we're talking about clinical debriefing, you know, Emma Phillips also published, just literally in the last month, I think it was, uh, a review of some of the clinical debriefing frameworks and methods. So she's had a busy time. Slow down, Emma. You're making the rest of us look bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of making the rest of us look bad, our next paper is from a erudite articulate group who are going to rock our world with some simulation theory. Uh, so the title of this last paper we're going to talk about, it comes from Academic Medicine, and the title of the paper is Fostering Adaptive Expertise Through Simulation. Sam Clark, Jonathan Ilgen, and Glenn Rigueur, who some of you might recognize, has written a lot on things like self-regulated learning, a bit of a thinker in medical education, literally just April 2023 in Academic Medicine. Uh, and look, I think if I was to describe this paper it is a long article which is concept heavy, no doubt about it, uh, but it's actually incredibly clear in its thinking. So I do encourage people to read it, but don't go looking for the 12 quick tips in it. Uh, you read it to immerse yourself in some really fundamental thinking about the way we think about learning in a simulation environment. And look, uh, their key point, as far as I can see it, uh, is that while simulation can help us achieve uh, mastery of skills and knowledge. And we've seen that in lots of the ways simulation is designed and delivered. It can probably, with some changes in the way we approach design and delivery, also help us improve our adaptive expertise. That is our ability to work through uncertainty, struggle, use invention and even failure. And so can focus on the process of learning and of problem solving in the clinical environment rather than assuming a nice linear simple stepwise approach to uh, achieving proficiency. So I think it situates adaptive expertise, which I'll talk about in a minute, as a new lens through which we should see simulation design and delivery. Um, have I got that right so far, do you think, Ben? Uh, 100%, and I couldn't agree more with your summary that this is uh, dense but really approachable and clear. I loved it. Yeah, all right. So let's walk through it here. SIM, as they explain in the article, has traditionally been a place to teach and assess skills safely. 
Um, but this has been through a mastery learning approach. We've heard lots from Bill McGahey and many others. Um, and what the authors of this article call a performance orientation. So techniques like deliberate practice, where there's practicing with intention and repetition of often quite clearly defined steps. Uh, so you think about it, we're practicing whether that's the lumbar puncture and Jeff Barsick's article, and we're repeating it against a very clear set of expectations until we get it right. And again, I'm quoting from the paper, this works on the underlying premise that performance can be maximized through algorithmic approaches that can be taught, enacted, and measured. And while this is pretty easily applied to procedural skills, we can see in a lot of our sim thinking, this is also applied to things like teamworking skills. We've got crisis resource management. You either have situational awareness or you don't, and we measure it, and then we uh, try and close that performance gap. The article is quick to point out this is good work. And they're quick to point out that this has resulted in significant uh, demonstrable improvements in people's proficiency. However, they say it probably also has some unintended consequences because when we tightly script these sessions in simulation, uh, unfortunately, they're kind of a limited approximation of how the skills and behaviors play out in authentic clinical practice. And again, quoting here, current design principles for SIM focus on predictable, observable, and measurable behaviors, which might limit the way in which learning moments are explored and understood. And I think this is pretty critical. So it creates this false impression that authentic clinical management is more puzzle solving than problem definition or sense making. So enter this concept of adaptive expertise, and I feel like I'm a little bit lucky and cheating a bit because I just recorded a podcast on adaptive expertise with Martin Pusick and Bill Kutcher and a couple of the authors on that for the Harvard Macy podcast. So I've been forced to think about this concept, which uh, was pretty new to me. But if I was to summarize it in my words, I'd say adaptive expertise recognizes that there's a lot of complexity in what clinicians do and that a lot of clinical problems are very ill-defined. And so adaptive expertise is the flexible use of knowledge and the ability to generate new solutions. So routine procedural approaches plus creative, innovative ones when the situation calls for it. And that's uh, at least how Martin Pusick defines um, uh, adaptive expertise. And there are some pretty well accepted instructional strategies for fostering adaptive expertise. Uh, developing deep conceptual understanding as the basis, exposure to meaningful variation, an emphasis on productive struggle and discovery, and what, again, Martin Pusick calls metacognitive strategizing. So in the moment, thinking about how we are puzzling through things and dealing with ill-defined problems. And he describes a productive tension between efficiency, getting the work done through the procedural approaches, and innovation, which is, hmm, maybe we need to do it differently here. So how does all this connect into SIM? How we might take some of this stuff um, and put it into SIM and, and what would that change about the way that we design and deliver it? And there's a couple of big words I'm going to put in here, Ben. Here's, here's the trigger warning here. Uh, back to the main article that we're talking about, they say that the current approaches lack epistemic fidelity. Wow, big word. I.e., they fail to recognize, fail to capture the complexity of con authentic clinical problems. And as we've talked about before, it means that then sometimes simulation can be this simulacrum, hyper real. And so instead of actually uh, being, we learn through simulation effectively, we actually just get a simulation of learning. So it becomes uh, a bit of 
playtime and we're pretending at learning rather than actually using the productive struggle. So uh, instead, maybe we need to think about a problem-solving task in SIM that's challenging enough to engage in exploration that allows multiple solutions or strategies with a space to explore. And so you actually then prepare people for future learning through a combination of exploration and productive struggle. And debriefing of this experience moves from closing performance gaps to instead, and I quote, guided exploration of ill-defined problems. And while this might seem semantics, I can actually visualize how that looks different in a scenario. Instead of writing a learning uh, objective, which is demonstrate your CPR skills, you're actually talking about explore uh, how a team works in a cardiac arrest and not saying you expect it to go a certain way, but instead saying here is SIM as an opportunity to explore. And so actually then designing simulations that have tensions and ill-defined challenges, getting to CT safe and fast. Are we going to favor one or the other in this particular situation? Do we decide to intubate or not? And who cares which happens, but let's focus on how the team has worked their way through it. Um, should we do our intubation first or our intercostal catheter first? So creating scenarios that have these tensions in them that you actually hold lightly, whatever the outcome is, but you um, actually are very interested in the process through which teams might puzzle through it. And that shifts the role of the instructor from being person with the right answer to the person coaching through the thinking and the process. So I think, Ben, this is actually quite important and it does have a practical outcome in terms of our design and delivery, um, but you can see it is a little bit conceptual and so I had to spend a little bit of time getting my head around it. So was that your interpretation? Yeah, absolutely, pretty much. So, you know, I love this paper a lot. I think it's a really nice call to action for thinking about how we design and deliver and debrief simulations. I do think it's a little uncharitable towards what's actually happening in the simulation community. I think there's plenty of sims I've gone to where complexity and ambiguity is, is comfortably acknowledged. But I'd agree that, you know, probably particularly in literature and in published uh, simulations and uh, simulation proformers and... Uh, even in some of our debriefing training, I think we do maintain that illusion of, oh, we're going to be the guide on the side, but also here are the expected criteria and this is how we will correct them. So there is that hypocrisy there. And I think for me at its heart is, again, that call to humility, um, that there are multiple ways to do things, that complexity should be incorporated in simulation for the right team. Uh, I think is important. Uh, and I think personally, the impact for me is thinking about how do we take that next step for high level teams to start adapting to uncertainty better? Because, um, yeah, I do think we do this quite well sometimes. I think things like circular questions actually can be really useful for more complex gray areas. Uh, but I do love that central argument. And I did highlight one quote that really stood out for me as a relatively prominent thesis of the paper, which was when they said, we hold the position that advancing pedagogy in support of adaptive expertise through simulation is not dependent on technological advancement per se. Rather, it is through simulation's affordances of starting and stopping time, 
providing opportunities to describe one's thought process as it unfolds, and allowing learners to seek and rehearse new approaches and solutions that we may better examine and support the developing cognitive processes of learners. And I thought that summed it up really nicely for me in terms of how I can facilitate and support this better. Oh, I just, I do think this is a hard ask though, because I still think a lot of the time when we're creating scenarios, it has to be acknowledged. They are still a relatively crude tool. Uh, you know, that, that concept of whose reality matters. We have a, a relatively limited set of signals to give our participants, particularly in a mannequin based simulation, which we might be doing if we're rehearsing someone that's sick and to actually then design something that could mean or be caused by multiple things or predictably create a challenge for participants that will have multiple solutions and to then provide them with the, what is it, epistemic fidelity for them to actually make meaningful decisions on the space, on the signals that we're giving them. It's a really, really tough ask. And so I do wonder whether sometimes maybe simulation isn't always the place for us to develop that, that maybe sim could also be a place where we learn that schematic and we learn that basic approach that we then hang our thought processes on as we learn some uh, adaptive expertise on the floor and adapt those recipes to what's happening in the patient in front of us. Yeah, I agree with you, because uh, even if we can grasp some of these concepts, we're also asking our learners to get that, and we're having to signpost that. And if you think about, say, learners who have been used to being assessed as undergraduates in simulation, then suddenly say, oh, no, this is just a place for exploration. They're going, no, not really. I know you're just judging me and giving me a 1 to 10. Uh, and so it's quite hard for people to, as learners, to shift their mindset around what are we trying to do here haven't you got an expectation of me and let me know if I haven't met it? And that's completely understandable. So I, as per usual, being clear with ourselves about what we're trying to do is the first step and then also being clear with uh, others. What I will do is I will also put a link in about the um, Martin Pusick article about educating for adaptive expertise because that does give case examples along the med ed curriculum from the real world. They didn't refer to simulation as well as what at all. So I think that might help also think about, well, clearly we can also think about clinical supervision, about real patient care in this context. Uh, I think there are opportunities and I think it's probably fair they're trying to say, don't dish on all that other stuff. That's actually quite good. But there are other opportunities that we might think about uh, if we were to ad embrace this conceptual approach. So a lovely read. And I think the other thing I would say about this is an article like this in academic medicine uh, really illustrates the importance of people having some ongoing theorizing about learning in SIM for individuals, for teams and systems, so that we don't just get stuck in formats and we've got um, guidance from people who think deeply and who have a deep understanding of theory to help guide us through uh, our practice as well. And and then to be able to write this eloquently and clearly, I think, is another talent on top of that as well, to have those complicated thoughts and then diffuse it down into something that's really dense but approachable. Like, it was a lovely read. Mm. Mm. Yeah, totally. Well, Ben, four more great articles, all very different in their own way. Would encourage uh, Simulcast listeners to read them, but if you don't have time, you'll just have to make do with Ben and Vic's synopsis. 
Well, looking forward. I hope you have a great month of May, Ben. I am off to Boston for a week to say hello to a few of my friends as one of my colleagues is retiring. Uh, but looking forward to being back here in June and talking more simulation goodness with you. Yes, it's going to be a good month. And I hope things go well overseas. Mm, thank you. All right. Well, this is Victoria Brazel, Ben Simon, signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast. 